You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. We gotta live on science Welcome to Unbiased Science, where we bring scientific method to the madness. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica Steyer. And Dr. Andrea Love. And this week, we are tackling a topic um, that's been requested more times than we can count. We're going to talk about weight, obesity, and BMI, and the controversy that surrounds some of these terms. But first, let's just recap last week's episode. So if you didn't tune into that, we we talked about prevention and screening tests. So we talked about how recommendations are set in the U.S., and then we gave some specific examples of recommended screenings and vaccines and the like. So if you missed that episode, definitely go back and check it out. Today, we are joined by a very special guest, an expert on this topic. Dr. Spencer Nadolsky is a board-certified obesity and lipid specialist physician. He is the medical director for one of the largest online medical obesity treatment programs, Sequence, and we'll link to that on the show notes, but you could check it out at joinsequence.com. And he also hosts a weekly podcast, the Docs Who Lift podcast, with his brother, who's an endocrine chronologist and obesity doc. Um, he also runs a fun and very informative Instagram account where he dispels myths about weight loss and fitness using memes. And you can check him out at Dr. Nadolsky. And again, we'll link to all of this in our show notes. All right. So Andrea, do you want to set the stage with some population demographics? First of all, thank you, Dr. Nadolsky, for joining us. You know, we obviously um, get asked about this a lot when we talk about certain health conditions that obesity is a risk factor. You know, that kind of opens the Pandora's box of, you know, a lot of the controversy around the term and, and things like that. So I'm really excited that we're tackling this. So just to quickly set the stage, according to the way that obesity or being overweight is categorized currently, approximately 69 percent of U.S. adults are classified as either being overweight or obese. And parsing that further, about 36 percent of individuals are classified as being obese. If you look within different race or ethnicity groups, as well as by gender, you'll notice that obesity rates on the whole have kind of stabilized since 2003. And we actually discussed this when we talked about um, the controversy surrounding high fructose corn syrup. But what you'll note is that rates are increasing among particular demographics. Men, non-Hispanic Black women and Mexican American and um, Alaskan Native women. So if you look at the actual rates of obesity, they are higher among non-Hispanic Black, among Hispanic, Alaskan Native, and Mexican American adults when you compare those rates to non-Hispanic white adults and non-Hispanic Asian adults. In particular, non-Hispanic Black women have the highest rates of obesity, um, measuring at nearly 59%. And that's compared to obesity rates of about 33% in non-Hispanic white women. So obesity, very broadly, it's multifactorial. And I'm going to ask you, Dr. Nadolsky or, or Spencer, if we can call you Spencer here, um, to weigh in on that in, in more detail. But, you know, aside from the obvious things, right, genetics, lifestyle habits, things like that, there are a lot of other 
factors that can lead to disparities in obesity among gender, among race and ethnicity. And those would include things that are systemic, right? Preventative healthcare access, food deserts, um, income security or, or insecurity, and so on. So maybe, Spencer, if you can kind of set the stage first about some of those contributing factors, and then maybe we can dig into, you know, how obesity is actually classified and whether or not that is an appropriate measure. Yeah. So thanks for having me on. I I think, you know, it might be good to start with like, how do we even define medically what obesity is? Right now, you know, and we're going to get into the BMI, but right now the it's BMI centric. So for those listening, you just say, you know, these statistics and it's like, what, what do they mean by this many people have obesity? How did they determine they had obesity? And for right now, a lot of the statistics are just based off of a 30 BMI uh, and above. Uh, and we're going to get into how there probably should be different cutoffs for certain races. So and I don't know if the statistics take even those into account, uh, which might be interesting. If you guys know that, I, so, when I look at some of these statistics, I'm not even sure if they do take that into account. Uh, when I'm, you know, debating with people online. So what contributes to obesity? Well, obesity is, uh, in medical terms, would be an amount of excess adipose tissue that's causing harm to that individual. So when you look at a 30 BMI, it could be a, you know, an NFL linebacker who's mostly, you know, muscle. So that that doesn't necessarily fit that person. Again, we're going to get into the nuances of BMI here soon. So what contributes to an excess amount of adiposity? It's an energy excess. And as you stated, there's genetics involved. The genetics involved are usually related to appetite centers in the brain that basically, if you look back in the you know early 1900s and you see pictures of, of people, it didn't look like there were many people with obesity walking around. And so you wonder what's, what's changed? Well, the changes are environment and technology and things like that. So what would that be? Well, highly processed, highly easily overconsumed foods. Well, so okay, so then why would there be disparities as you as you said amongst different races and populations? Well, uh, some people have more access to those foods and maybe are more drawn to those foods due to their environment, not by any um, responsibility or any uh, reason other than that's what's available. Uh, not necessarily because uh, they, they, the, the shame and stigma we're going to get into, but people think that, oh, it's because people are lazy and gluttonous. It's like, well, no, it's we all kind of live through life passively. We're not born thinking about how many calories we should be eating and not eating and what foods. We just go in our path that we're living in, and that's kind of how it happens. So if you just kind of let it play out, this is what we see. So a lot of the environmental factors and like you said, disparities basically shows what we have right now today. And if you would have gone back however many years, we wouldn't have seen this large of discrepancy, but you can see some of the genetics play a role. Like even even back in the ninth, earlier 1900s, you still see variances in the weight, and that's the genetics involved, despite having a, a, an environment that's not as conducive to 
um, excess weight. So, so Spencer, you know, as science communicators, obviously, you know, we do sometimes cover that this topic, or you know, we, we're talking about obesity in the context of other topics, and we'll we'll sometimes get pushback because folks say that we might imply that obesity is driven by behaviors. You know, it's not a choice, and we're sort of fat shaming. So, I mean, based on what you're saying, I mean, I think we're all sort of saying it's multifactorial, and some of it is passive and environmental, but is is it safe to say that, you know, for, for some at least, you know, it is behaviors may contribute? I wrote a blog when I think I was in residency at the time or just out of residency about how is obesity a choice? Now I just I just posed it as a question. People got mad back then in 2014 or whatever it was. But now I just I just straight up say obesity is not a choice. Nobody wakes up and says yep, today I'm going to have obesity and that's my choice today. You know, people are like, well, sumo wrestlers, they try to, yeah, okay, sumo wrestlers, maybe. Uh, that's <laughs> extremely rare. But most people go through life and yes, behaviors do contribute, but the behaviors are, you, 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 we make hundreds of, of choices per day that may contribute or not contribute to our weight. And a lot of it's subconscious. And if you're living in the current environment that you're living in, say, for example, I, I like to pull out the extreme examples and then pull back from there. So let's say you're a child living uh, with a family and the mom and dad are working multiple shifts just to make ends meet. You got whatever's in, in the fridge. And maybe because the parents aren't around so much, you may be having some behavioral issues. Then you take them to the doctor. They put you on some sort of medicine. You eventually get on some medicine that may contribute more to appetite and weight gain so on and so forth. You go through life eating a little bit more, a little bit more. That's not necessarily in your control. So that's an extreme example, of course, that's like totally out of your control. You started off kind of on the wrong foot. And then people are like, yeah, but people know that eating broccoli and you should be eating broccoli and chicken breasts, of course. It's like a a bro thing to say, but like you should be eating chicken breast and broccoli and spinach. I hear other doctors say it. When I was in the clinic, I could hear them saying it through the wall. You should be eating egg whites and spinach. And I'm just like, oh my God, this is not going to go anywhere. But people know that people understand they shouldn't be eating certain foods like donuts and whatever. But people talk about this food noise. So is it really in our control that, you know, that you have this itch that you want to scratch all the time and and you try and try your best, but the, the, the itch is just kind of telling you to eat that other higher calorie yummy food. So anyway, I talk about how it's, it's not a choice. Nobody's choosing to have obesity or not, uh, but the behaviors obviously do play a big role and we can try to fight back, but these, the, the environment, the biology kind of pushes back against somebody so hard to where it's like, is it really in our control? It might be it, part of it's in our control, obviously, but I would say most for most people, it's not as much in, nearly in our control as we think it is. So just to clarify, though, I mean, because obviously we're using this word, we've been using it throughout the episode thus far. Do, so you as a physician, you do use the term obesity to describe your some of your patients? Okay. So, okay. So here's a, that's a great question because I'll talk about obesity in the, in, as in like medical literature term. However, with patients, I don't use the term obesity. If you look at like what patients like feel stigmatized by, there's, there's, there's good papers and they've done survey data on this. Nobody likes the term fat, although there's some groups out there that want to liberate that term. No, but I can tell you one thing I have not had, I maybe had one patient out of thousands of patients that said, you can say I'm fat. 
And I'm like, I'm just not going to do that. But most people don't like fat. They don't like the term obese. Um, they prefer just talking about weight in general. So I actually don't use the term with patients specifically obesity, but talking about the topic online or in medical uh, situation like lectures, we can talk about obesity in general, but I don't talk to an individual and say, so you have obesity. And also I use first, you know, person first language. So I don't say you're a diabetic. I say you have type two diabetes. I don't say you're obese. I would say they have obesity, but I don't even say that to the patient directly. I just, we just talk about weight and that kind of uh, alleviates the stigma I found anyway. And that's what seems to be what the literature shows, what people prefer, just weight in general. Does that clarify, like we can talk about obesity on a medical like level and a macro level, but when I'm talking with an individual, I don't talk about obesity because it's, it's not a preferred, it, people don't like the term. No, ab- absolutely. I mean, you, you did answer the question and, and actually we did pull some statistics. You're right. There have been many studies, many surveys. I think right now, current estimates are that 19 to 24% of adults with obesity experience some form of discrimination because of their weight from bullying at home or work um, to fat discrimination in clinical settings. And then the rates of weight bias are even higher um, in women and people with higher body mass index scores. And we're going to talk about BMI in a second. But the reason we wanted to ask this um, is because we actually, um, we we heard from one of our followers. So we have this segment called Heard from the Herd. Um, And I think you you just addressed this, but I would like to just read this comment. I'm not going to name the person, but, but this is what she submitted. She said, as a fat person who would be considered obese, myself and many other fat people consider the term to be incredibly stigmatizing and unhelpful. Fatness is a complex issue, and the term obesity is regularly used as a means to blame, shame, and discriminate against fat people. I can't speak for all fat people, but myself and many fat people consider the word to be a slur. It's dehumanizing, and it really hurts. I genuinely feel that words like obesity and other forms of anti-fat bias contribute to the problem that you've discussed in several posts. When we talk about fat people as a disease and other them, it's no wonder that fat people turn to off-label use in an attempt to escape being treated so poorly. Um, and that was a direct quote. Uh, I just want to make that clear. So I think that's what you you were responding to, Spencer. Do you have anything else to you know to add to that or to respond to? Yeah, I would say, I would say very few people prefer to be called a fat person. Uh, that they my patients would find that extremely derogatory. They get ex- ups, they've. They've been called fat by some doctors or physicians, and they don't like it. But there are there are some groups that want to liberate the term, and I think that's fine. I think that's great, but I will not use that term. I can promise you that because most patients will not like that. I think at, at some point, whatever you call it, some want to change the term to adiposity-based chronic disease. Um, it, it, I, I think there's going to be stigma and, and shame no matter what you call it. So uh, we just have to keep working harder to discuss about how like, hey, this is no different from any other disease. And I know it sounds like they don't like the term disease, but from a medical standpoint, it's a disease. Um, So, uh, you know, it causes harm and that's the bottom line. There's not really any, I I don't know what the... I don't know why people get so mad about it. We can't just we can we can accept that people are going to have obesity and it's going to be very hard for them to resolve their obesity, but I don't think it's acceptable to 
pretend that it doesn't cause harm. So, and it depends. Again, there's some there's some nuance about where you're storing the adiposity and how much excess adiposity, and depends on the person and 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 other risk factors. But um, in general, th- that's why we care about it. Yeah, Spencer, I think you you make a great point there, right? And and often when we're creating posts to address you know, certain disease states and how obesity can be a risk factor for those, you know, we're using it in the context of a medical, a medical condition or a medical term, right? And a lot of the stigma has been born out of public perception and societal pressures and and things like that. And so there's this convergence, right? We want to address, you know, the potential harms associated with this increased adiposity, you know, excess fat stores that, that, you know, can lead to poor health outcomes and not pretend like it doesn't exist. And and that's something that I think we'll dig into a little bit more. But I think this is a really great segue into, you know, how we actually classify this. So, you know, as you mentioned, it's a BMI-centric measurement currently. And according to, you know, CDC and several other health organizations, a BMI of greater than 25 is considered overweight, whereas a BMI of over 30 is considered obese. So can we kind of talk about what BMI is and and whether or not it really is the most appropriate method of, you know, characterizing obesity in the medical sense. Yeah. So it's, you need some sort of easy, quick marker to estimate adiposity. So BMI, body mass index, kilograms per meter squared. Uh, and I know in, before we were talking about the the history of it and you guys can get into, you know, the, um, what is his name? Quit, quit, let, quit, quit. What's I don't remember. Remember his last name. And then um, Ansel Keys, and then uh, all the all the history there. But we need some sort of easy screener to assess adiposity. In the ideal world, we would have a, a little scanner thing on our phone that would scan somebody and basically get give us DEXA like results. Basically, show us total adiposity, lean body mass, bone mass, and all those things, skeletal muscle mass. And then where that person's storing the fat, and then we could we could easily assess like based very objective data. The issue with BMI it shows total body mass like compared to their to their height. And the issue is is that, for example, me I have like a BMI of it's almost it's like twenty seven or something like that. So technically I would fit in that overweight category. However, my body fat percentage I just got it is around thirteen percent. So, um, you know, that it wouldn't necessarily fit for me. And there are people in that range and sometimes around 30, although, you know, I don't get a lot of NFL, like NFL linebackers who are in that 30 range who are a lot of um, muscle mass who have that higher BMIs. I get the, some anabolic steroid users and things like that that go above that, but, you know, relatively rare and that has risk itself as well. But in general, that's one. That's like one of the biggest things, especially in the fitness population. Like BMI is not that accurate. My life insurance just went up, and I'm super lean, and it's just because my BMI was elevated. So the issues with BMI is it doesn't assess muscularity. It's just total body mass compared to their height, and then uh, it, it also doesn't show where adiposity is stored. Now, this is something that people won't realize if you could have a 30 to, you know, in the lower thirties BMI and you could have a relatively trim waist and be very fit, but just hold most of that weight in, in your, in your butt and thighs, glutes, thighs, which is actually probably pretty healthful. Actually, um, the, when you store your fat in, in those areas, 
it's a, it's a good thing. You're metabolically healthy, likely. So BMI wouldn't capture that. So those, those are kind of the nuances there. And then depending on your race, the usual 30 is based off of, you know, Caucasians, white, white folks. When you start looking at like more of the Asian populations, the cutoffs for when that person will start developing the issues that we talk about, like type two diabetes and that type of thing, cardiovascular disease, cardiometabolic disease, the cutoffs much lower. It can get, can get down to more of like a 24 uh, BMI. So the reason is for that is because people have different thresholds for how much fat they can store their adipose tissue until they start storing it in places that shouldn't be stored, like, for example, your liver and visceral, uh, other viscera um, organs, pancreas starts getting stored in your muscle, places it's not supposed to be stored, and that's where you start developing insulin resistance, type 2 diabetes, and that type of thing. Hopefully that uh, gives a good, somewhat of a nuanced picture there. No, it, it absolutely does. And Spencer, you referenced the history of, of BMI briefly, and I wanted to yeah. to fill in, um, to fill that in a little bit. And I also will be butchering the name of this Belgian mathematician. Um, Quetlet, right? Quetlet. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> Quetlet. Yes. Andrea Quetlet. chuckles because she knows I can't pronounce anything. I I, I mean, I, I once read something. It's like, it's okay if you mispronounce things because it means that you've read a lot lot about them. You, you just may not have heard them spoken, right? But you're, you're doing a lot of reading. So that, that's why <laughs> I sort of feel better about mispronouncing everything. But yes, so there was a Belgian mathematician named Le- Lambert Adolf Jacques Quetlet, who developed the term, or I guess the measure of BMI in 1832. And researchers initially used BMI to describe large groups of people, not individuals. Um, And it took off around the mid-20th century with actuaries looking to describe populations to determine things like risk and and life insurance. But, but, you know, at that time, it was was focused on on white people. And so we'll, we'll discuss, you know, fact that that impact BMI accuracy, many of which you've already touched upon, um, Spencer. But, you know, at that time, they were looking at the BMIs of large groups, and they found that there were these patterns, and that certain BMI ranges were associated with greater risks of diseases, of mortality, and other poor outcomes. And so that's why, you know, lines were drawn. There were these um, categories. Uh, but it's not like, you know, and I think you, you said this, Spencer, it's not like below a certain point, you know, it, it's a magical cutoff and below it, you're healthy or above it, you're at risk, right? So right. it's not mm-hmm. entirely arbitrary, but it's not like something magical happens at those at those cutoffs. Correct. So so to your point, you know, is BMI accurate? You know, it's it's sort of complicated. Um, we, we know that, you know, as BMI rises, typically on average, you know, your risk of health problems does in, increase. But again, at a high BMI, that, that doesn't automatically mean that you're in in poor health. And it has to, you know, and I, I, I'm assuming you, you would agree, Spencer, it's sort of, you know, it's one piece of a larger puzzle of health. You know, it's one piece of data. And so, you know, it can't be taken alone. It has to be taken in the context of other health markers and health history and things like that. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So, so, so if somebody came in the clinic and they said, and all I knew about him was this person has a I don't know, let's say just 30 BMI. Tell me if they're healthy or not. I'm like, eh, I mean, like, <laughs> I, I could say, okay, if compared to someone with maybe a 24 BMI and all else being equal, I could say that person with the 
the 30 BMI likely at a greater risk of X, Y, Z. But I, it, it's really, that's not, it's, that's not how we practice medicine. The issue I think is, is that we have insurance companies who take this data to heart and I get, I get frustrated. I'm like, Oh, come on, make sure that they check their muscularity, make sure they're checking. A, you can check a waist circumference. That's a good way to a cheaper way instead of having to do a DEXA scan and all this other stuff. Um, you can sh- do a, a waist circumference. And as I said, you know, you can have a trim, nice trim waist despite a, a higher BMI. And that's, that's, that's good because, um, you, uh, are at a lower risk. You're not storing the adiposity there. So, um, yeah, I, I, it's, it's, it's a, it's supposed to be used as a screener. We don't know how to get away with it, uh, get, get away from it. I should say exactly. Um, even from that point, if it's only used as a screener, I think it's okay. Ideally we would have a scanner when people walk through the doorway at the doctor's office, it would be nice to, to somehow just get a snapshot of that person's whole body and their insides and, and what's going on. But we did, the technology just doesn't exist yet. So that's that's the gist. Yeah, and Spencer, I think you make a really, really good point there. You know, obviously there are things that, that affect the accuracy, right? Muscularity, um, the distribution of weight. We know individuals who carry more adiposity around the midsection compared to someone that carries, you know, in the lower extremities or the hips, you know, there, there are higher risks for certain negative health outcomes, um, but also, you know, age and, and race and ethnicity. You know, those are all things that can impact BMI, which is, you know, ultimately why it should be used in the context of other health measures. And, you know, interestingly, I've actually noticed in recent publications, they're often including additional metrics such as waist circumference alongside BMI calculations. And I want to talk about some of the health implications of obesity. And then and then I want you to kind of talk about management of obesity. But it also kind of leads into this, this concept or, you know, the, the topic of the healthy at every size. And there was an interesting case cohort study um, that I was reading where they they were kind of addressing or investigating the concept of someone who is, you know, metabolically healthy. So some of these other biomarkers or parameters that you can use to determine if someone is healthy, even if they have a, you know, a higher BMI um, measurement. Um, and so they're looking at other sorts of markers, things like blood pressure, total cholesterol, HDL cholesterol levels, triglycerides, um, um, C-reactive protein levels, blood glucose, and things like that. And they looked at 520. 20,000 people um, with a median follow-up time of about 12 years. And they found that even for those individuals with normal blood pressure, blood sugar, cholesterol, triglycerides, and those sorts of parameters, simply being overweight in the context of a BMI value increased the risk of um, um, heart disease by by 28%. Now, what they also found was completely irrespective of BMI, so even individuals who had BMI values within the healthy range or the the non-overweight range, if they had, you know, metabolic profiles that suggested they were unhealthy, so, you know, poor values for total cholesterol, HDL, triglycerides and so on and so forth, they also had higher risk of, of heart disease than, you know, individuals that, you know, were, were considered, um, 
you know, healthy. So, so it kind of goes both ways, right? You can have a normal BMI value, but be metabolically unhealthy, but simply being metabolically healthy, but also being overweight can also have some potential risk factors. So maybe you can quickly touch on this, the, the concept of the, the healthy at every side, or, or maybe kind of, you know, what's this window or, you know, is there a concern of, of extremes on either side of the weight spectrum um, before we kind of go into some of the, the implications of obesity and how to really manage it? Yeah, yeah. So this is, this is the concept of metabolically healthy obesity. And, and it also plays in the concept of clinically diagnosing obesity. So the person with technically like a normal BMI, but with adiposity-based chronic disease, such as dyslipidemia, hypertension, prediabetes, or type 2 diabetes, that person probably also has obesity clinically. It means they have an excess amount of adipose tissue that's causing harm. And so you can't, you, you wouldn't be able to find that on a BMI. Everybody has different thresholds. And yes, like I said, the rate, the depending on your race, that can change that threshold. But even, even people, uh, Caucasians can have a, a lower BMI, look thin, but have these metabolic disturbances because their genetics or whatever else don't allow them to store a lot of fat before having some of these metabolic issues. So I do a lot of talks about metabolically healthy obesity. Technically, it's, it's, it's relatively, relatively rare. Uh, it's like 7% those with obesity are, have a metabolically healthy obesity. And if you, if you look even further uh, into someone, if you start doing scans of their liver, and there's probably still, um, there could be liver fat and things like that. So it's, it's relatively rare, but we do see it, completely normal markers. And this is also where it, get, it gets into that clinical staging of obesity. So you got your, you have your BMI kind of assessing adiposity, but then you also look at those adiposity-based chronic diseases. And there's the Edmonton staging uh, system. You, you can look that up. There's the ACE, um, American Academy uh, Clinical Endocrinologists. They have their own staging system. But basically the idea is like, well, we can classify obesity uh, with, you know, we call it class so, Class uh, class one is a thirty to you know just under thirty five BMI. Class two is thirty to just under forty BMI, and class three obesity is over forty BMI. Okay, so you have your classes. It's BMI centric, whatever. But now you have your staging of obesity. So if somebody's like has zero metabolic conditions, but I would also throw out their orthopedic issues. So if somebody uh, people can have um, you know obstructive sleep apnea, but still have normal metabolic markers. That would be from the excess, you know, mass, not necessarily from their internal medicine or metabolic health. So people can have stage zero, then they can have stage one where they start having some of these, you know, subclinical or preclinical type of things, you know, and some slightly elevated blood pressure, some slightly elevated blood sugars and that type of thing. And go to class two where they have straight up type two diabetes, hypertension, dyslipidemia. And then you can, you can even go even further if you start going higher in the, um, in the stages if you want, uh, where they have like end-stage cardiovascular disease and, and really uncontrolled type 2 diabetes and that type of thing. It, there's multiple staging things out there. But when you look at it and you start following these people throughout life, that like you said, in your study, it's kind of, kind of the same thing. The people with the most, it's really the staging that's probably the most important part the people that actually have health issues from their adiposity, those are the people that are, are the highest risk and those are the people that likely we should be, be more aggressive with weight loss for. Um, so, yeah, somebody, you know, technically could have a 
class three uh, obesity, they could be a BMI of 40 stage zero and do better than, you know, a, a, maybe someone just class one, maybe just at 30 BMI, but staged, you know, two or three or whatever, however you want to stage it. Um, that person's going to do worse because they just can't handle their their body, their genetic, their threshold can't handle that much adiposity without developing um, the sequela or the the end stage diseases from that adiposity. If that makes sense. No, it makes total sense. And let me see if I can distill it for for the listeners too. So so ultimately, Spencer, what you're saying is that there are certain individuals, and whether that be to due to their inherent genetics or their physiology, that they're better able to cope with or handle excess adiposity, meaning they could be measured at a higher BMI, but their metabolic profile, you know reflects what we would expect someone with a lower BMI to have and vice versa. So someone could yeah. be technically at a healthy BMI value, but they don't handle, maybe they're they're what we would call over fat, right? They have a higher adipose to muscle ratio and as a result have a, a metabolic profile that skews towards that unhealthy. And so, you know, there's a lot of factors that can can come into play, but ultimately, you know, there's, there's not a one size fits all for, you know, yeah. measuring obesity and also managing it. Yeah. We get, we get dealt the cards that we get at birth and we have certain genetics and some of us, it's just, it stinks. Some people can, some people can store a lot of subcutaneous fat and not really get any issues from it. And other people, they start storing a little bit of that. And then all of a sudden it starts spilling over into their other organs and despite having what would be considered a normal BMI, they start developing insulin resistance and type 2 diabetes, whereas somebody could store a ton of subcutaneous fat and be like, they're relatively insulin sensitive. You know, Now, I will say that you know they've done studies and still the person with all things being equal, you take someone, you know, and this is kind of the study you showed that uh, all things being equal, the person with that, that 40 BMI, super metabolically healthy compared to a, a, a leaner uh, individual who's super metabolically healthy, that person with the the higher BMI likely is at a higher risk. But you know, in in the end, it's not a reason to discriminate. I think that's the issue here. It's like people like to point fingers and whatever about health, but it's like if we're looking at health like holistically and looking at what health actually is, there's a lot more than just like our HDL and blood sugars and tri triglycerides. We don't talk about mental health and all sorts of other <laughs> yeah. components of health. There's a lot of unhealthy people out there regardless of their weight. So um, I think it's it's easy for people to you know throw stones just because they can look at their outside appearance. I think that's the issue. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great point, right? You know, obesity is something that you can visually see on a person, right? But you don't mm -hmm. know what's going on under the hood. And, you know, mm -hmm. so, you know, my myself as an example, like I'm relatively healthy. I I won't lie, I eat ice cream on a daily basis, but I run <laughs> a lot and, you know, my, my blood values are pretty good. But I struggle with anxiety and depression and I lost my brother to suicide as a result of his bipolar. And so, you know, that's in our family genetics. And, you know, that's a whole other type of, of health issue. Um, but, but I do want, you know, I do want to note that there are some legitimate health implications of obesity, right? There are yep. some health issues related to weight. Now, some of that can be potentially could be confounded by systemic discrimination or stigma, but, you know, individuals who have higher adiposity um, are at higher risk for all-cause mortality, high blood pressure, you know, which we would term hypertension, high LDL cholesterol and low 
HDL cholesterol or, or high levels of triglycerides, which you would term dyslipidemia, type 2 diabetes, coronary heart disease, um, um, sleep apnea, which you also noted, Spencer. Um, it's also implicated in t- certain types of cancer, including uterine, liver, breast, and colorectal cancer. And there's also other sorts of things, things like stroke and gallbladder disease, but other things simply associated with excess weight. So, you know, low quality of life um, because you're not able to be as active as you might want to be or as your family might want you to be, or um, you might struggle with body pain and and physical, you know, um, functioning issues, or it might also lead to um, degeneration of the joints and osteoarthritis. So, you know, it's not something that we want to ignore, but rather destigmatize so people are able to manage it in, in a productive way. So, this actually leads perfectly into, you know, how do we treat or manage obesity aside from, you know, what we hear so often, oh, diet and, and increased exercise. There are medical ways to also manage it. So maybe, Spencer, you can kind of touch on that. Obviously, there are some new medications that have gotten a lot of attention in pop culture lately. And then there's also some other alternative procedures. Yeah. So in order to help somebody lose weight at adipose, you got to somehow find a way to get them into what's called a calorie deficit, eating fewer calories than they burn. And so, you know, the whole way was to, hey, you got to diet and exercise. Well, that means finding a nutrition plan that helps you eat fewer calories and hopefully working out will burn some more calories. Although that there's the, the science of that gets kind of muddy because uh, we can compensate in ways that negate a lot of the the effects of exercise and weight loss. So, but anyway, diet and exercise. And when you look at the effects of it, um, and the overall results, it's not great. Um, some people, there's probably some people listening going, Hey, I lost a hundred pounds and I've kept it off for however many years. And it's true. But when you look at it, it's extremely rare. It doesn't happen that often. The best most people could, um, probably get on average is somewhere around five, five percent or so over the course of like a year uh, and and some of that starts to level off and start to regain. So a very small percentage of people will have any clinically meaningful uh, weight loss success with lifestyle alone. This doesn't mean you shouldn't try it. It just means that that's just the reality. And the reason why is because our bodies fight us. As I talked about before, certain people have genetics that kind of fight you. And, and, and again, people may not understand that, but think of it like some people can if, if I say, hey, you need, to, you need to make a choice to go to from New York to L.A., some people can go ahead and get a plane ticket. Some people could drive. Some people may need to bike there, and some people need to walk. So there's some people where they're set up to where it's just like they're walking. They're going to have to walk. And technically, it's a, you know, they can find ways to, to keep walking. But, like, ultimately, that's going to be very tough for that individual. So there are been many tools trying to figure out how to help people actually get into this calorie deficit. A lot of it has to do with the appetite uh, centers in the brain. You know, obviously, if we can throw somebody into the environment of what we were before, it would be a lot easier. But again, you know, I talk about Donut Dan coming to the coming to the workroom, bringing donuts in. You know, you're like, ah, I shouldn't go to eat the donuts because they're they're not really filling and they have a lot of calories and they're easily overeaten to eat more and more and more. But Donut Dan keeps bringing in the donuts. So it's easier said than done to try to get away from our own environment. So we focus on biology, at least from a medical standpoint, 
they have surgery. Surgeries have been very effective over the years. They've gotten so good to where like the complications are very small now. It used to be like, oh gosh, do you want to lose weight or you want to die, you know, from the surgery? And to this point, it's like it's very routine. These they have centers of excellence now. They have something called a vertical sleeve gastrectomy, and then they where they cut part of your stomach, and then they have a Roux and Y gastric bypass where they cut your stomach into a pouch and rearrange a few parts of your intestine. And then they have some other newer ones that are pretty interesting. But those are very effective, but invasive and, and expensive. I know that folks want us to talk a little bit about medication management, especially because there's been a lot of buzz about Ozempic. So let's just talk about that briefly, if we can. We did a post that was responding to the off-label use of Ozempic. So Ozempic um, was approved by the FDA in 2017 for the treatment of type 2 diabetes. As a reminder for folks, type 2 diabetics don't produce enough insulin and or are resistant to insulin. And this drug helps control blood sugar levels. But what we noticed was that during clinical trials, weight loss was noted as a side effect. And then there's another drug, and I'm probably saying this incorrectly. Is it Wegovy? Wegovy? Wegovy. Okay. So that was FDA approved in 2021 for adults uh, who are obese or overweight and have at least one weight-related condition, such as high blood pressure or high cholesterol. Now, I mean, obviously, Spencer, we'd love to, to hear your thoughts on this, but what our post was responding to was the off-label use of Ozempic for vast Vanity-related weight loss. And this was really going viral among celebrities and influencers who were using this not for true, you know, weight management, but it was really for vanity purposes. So can you sort of just weigh in on this? Yeah. So these drugs are amazing. GLP-1 agonists, glucagon-like peptide 1, as you said. Uh, I guess I don't have time to go into history, but I'll say this. They are amazing. They're very effective for both type 2 diabetes and obesity treatment due to the appetite dysregulation that happens in obesity. The problem is, and Ozempic's been out since 2017. These GLP-1s have been uh, actually liraglutide, the the older, um, not a strong brother, liraglutide, Saxenda, was approved for obesity in 2014. So the GLP-1s, they've been studied for obesity for a while uh, as well. Um, so 2017, Ozempic came out one milligram. Nobody cared about it back then, but we all knew it caused weight loss. It was a, it was better than liraglutide, which was actually approved for obesity. Nobody cared until probably Wegovy came out. And the thing is, the the amount of weight loss was just way way better than the than anything we've ever had. 15% weight loss at the doses that Wegovy came out, 2.4 milligrams. Here's the issue: manufacturer Novo Nordisk. The pens are different for the Wegovy pen versus Ozempic pen. The same exact drug, semaglutide. Uh, the pens are different, and there was something that happened. They had a they had a huge, uh, huge demand for the Wegovy. I think they tried to ramp it up, and then I, I believe something happened with the actual pen, that to where they couldn't keep up with the demand. So then, then it, it went further viral because celebrities started talking, you know, Elon Musk says, Hey, I'm using Wegovy, but you couldn't get Wegovy because they screwed up the pen and they could, they couldn't manufacture it. It wasn't available. So then people turned to Ozempic. And so I got in trouble on my TikTok. I just said, Hey, we shouldn't be using GLP one medicines for vanity weight loss. Some people get upset for even using them off label for obesity, which I don't think is right. I think, you know, these are effective drugs for both obesity and 
type 2 diabetes regardless of the brand of it. But specifically for vanity weight loss at this moment when there's not a supply and people aren't shouldn't be taking these things long term if they're just using it for vanity because what are they going to do? Just take it forever? Maybe. I suppose they could. But for vanity weight loss, the risks are... You know, you have side effects from, but the risks are becoming underweight. And we see this now people getting down to uh, BMIs of like 18 just from, I, I see them. I see these patients, they had BMIs of 22 and their Hollywood doctor gives it to them and they get down to BMIs of 18 or even below. So um, it is, it's a, it's an issue. Uh, now compounders are doing it. So I suppose, you know, I don't recommend doing compounded medicine, but I suppose now all these people doing vanity weight loss with the drugs are going to the compounding pharmacies and these medispas are giving it out to them. Thank you for clarifying that. You know, so so I think the big takeaway is, you know, these these medications, these GLP-1 inhibitors have a lot of promise in treating very specific medical conditions as part of, you know, a plan with your physician when you qualify for these, either, you know, type 2 diabetes or, you know, obesity um, obviously should not be being used for vanity weight loss. That can lead to a whole host of other potential um, health conditions. Before we wrap, Spencer, I just want to ask if you have any any last thoughts that you'd like to leave to our listeners about obesity, about different criteria for it, about management of it, any final words? Yeah, my final words were, you know, I think there are a lot of people that think obesity doctors are fat phobic. It's like, no, 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 we're just, we're just here. Like if you want help, I'm not, I'm not going to force anybody that doesn't want to lose weight to lose weight. Uh, I'm not going to force any patient. I'm here, you know, we're here to help people. And I know there's doctors that do say the wrong things. We're trying to increase training to help with destigmatizing it. We're trying to, the public is really the, the most, has the most stigma so uh, when you go in the comment section of anything that's not from like one of my posts where my, you know, listeners and followers understand it, uh, and you still get those comments there. But like when you go to a regular post, you see the stigma is just out there. So, uh, you know, obesity medicine, we're trying to destigmatize. We're trying to do the best we can while also understanding the harms of having excess adipose in certain individuals. So I, I, would, I would leave it at that. Great. No, I think that's that's a perfect way to wrap it up. Thank you so much for helping us cover this very important, but also, you know, somewhat delicate topic. We're super appreciative. So thanks to our listeners. Uh, we hope you learned a thing or two. And if you want more Unbiased Signs, please check out our Substack subscription. We do post extended content there um, and regularly respond to questions from our subscribers. But the biggest perk is you get access to our private Facebook group and our monthly live Q&As. It is $5 a month to join. You can check it out at theunbiasedscipod.substack.com. Next episode, we are going to be covering some dangerous TikTok trends that have taken the world by storm. We will, of course, continue to provide updates on COVID, influenza, RSV, norovirus, and all sorts of other science and health topics on our social media accounts. So be sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn at Unbiased SciPod. Catch you next time on the pod, your trusted source for no nonsense, just science. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. I am a scientist.